First days at a new place can be tough, can't they? They can be awkward sometimes. Perhaps you moved in and you didn't know a person in your dorm, or perhaps you have a weird roommate. And by the way, if you don't know who the weird roommate is, it's you. No matter how bad your first day of class was, it's nothing to be compared to one of my first days of school. I was in the sixth grade going to a brand new Christian school where I didn't know a soul. They had P.E. that first day of class, and we had to bring our own gym clothes. Now, I had gone to public school, and we had never taken gym clothes. We just wore what we wore to school. So for the first time in my life, I had to pack a bag for P.E., and wouldn't you know it, my mom packed it for me. I opened up that bag, and there was a bright fluorescent orange shirt. Now, I'm just going to tell you, orange is not really working with my color palette. I have enough of that. When I wear things that are orange like that, I look like a big highlighter. But also in that gym bag, she put a pair of bright orange fluorescent spandex. Now listen, this is the 90s and spandex were in. Michael Jordan wore spandex under his gym shorts. But either my mother didn't know or she forgot, I got no gym shorts that day. And yes, I should have known better, but a sixth grade boy has his feet planted on the ground. His mind is in outer space. I put on that orange shirt. I put on those orange spandex and my tennis shoes, and I went out for my first day of school at P.E. I didn't have any trouble attracting attention. And just to save you from the mental image, it was a lot of orange and a lot of white. And so the boys in my grade, of course, were roasting me, as you guys would say. I picked up a nickname very quickly, Spandex, carried that for the rest of the year. And it didn't help when the assistant principal came out and said, boy, I don't know where you come from, but we wear shorts over our spandex here. It just made it all worse. So if you had an awkward, tough first day of college, I can promise you it was nothing compared to my first day of sixth grade. Hang in there. It's going to get better. Let's look at Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes And went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And came even before the king's gate. For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You may be seated this morning. The Jewish people were in a grave predicament. A wicked man named Haman had tricked the king of Persia into signing a law that called for the extermination of the Jewish race. As a result of this law, millions of men, women, and children would die. What we find out in the book of Esther is that while Haman was working for evil, 
God was behind the scenes working for good. If you know the story, you know that God has a secret agent in the palace. Her name is Esther. He's put the right person in the right place to make a difference. The only problem is that Esther doesn't know it yet. We think of Esther as one of the great heroines of the faith, and she is. But as chapter 4 opens, she has not yet accepted God's divine assignment for her life. This law goes out. Mordecai, her Jewish cousin, hears about it. He weeps, he wails. He rends his garments. He sits in sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate. Let me ask you a question this morning. Isn't that the logical reaction when you find out that millions of people are going to die? Of course it's logical. It would be illogical to react in any lesser way. I want to take a moment to remind you of some present day realities in our world. Statisticians now estimate that there are 7.5 billion people in our world. At the very most, there are 1.5 billion Christians. That means that there are at least 6 billion people in this world lost and headed to hell. Some missiologists talk about people groups. And they say that there are 6,600 unreached people groups. That means that less than 2% of that people group's population is born-again believer. They also talk about 3,300 unreached, unengaged people groups. They have less than 2%, but there is no record of any conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching movement trying to reach them. So whatever the realities were in Mordecai's day, millions of people about to die, be assured that the realities in our world, billions of people plunging into eternal hell, our reality is infinitely worse. How should we respond to things like that? How do you think Esther would respond? We'll look at verse 4. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Now we read that she's exceedingly grieved, but she's not exceedingly grieved that the people are perishing. She's exceedingly grieved that her cousin Mordecai is making a public spectacle of himself. She's exceedingly grieved that he's in sackcloth and ashes at the gate. That he's ripping his clothes. That he's weeping and wailing and putting on a production. So her answer to Mordecai's grief is, she's going to tell him, put away your sackcloth. Here are some nice new clothes for you to wear. A trip to the mall will fix you. Everyone Esther knows is weeping and wailing, but she seems relatively unaffected. After all, she's living in the penthouse of the palace, wearing designer clothes, driving a luxury chariot, and she can't figure out why everybody is so worked up about this thing. Now, how many of you would agree with me this morning that this was a situation that called for urgency? But instead... Esther responds in apathy. Mordecai doesn't like the answer that Esther gives. He's not about to take his sackcloth and ashes 
away, and he believes that Esther has been placed in the kingdom for such a time as this. Somehow, some way in chapter 4, for the Jewish people to be delivered the way that Mordecai thinks they're going to be delivered, he has to move Esther from a position of apathy to urgency. And if there's one thing that our generation of Christians in America is lacking, it's urgency. I want to remind you this morning that the Bible is an urgent book. The gospel is urgent news. The salvation of the nations is an urgent mission, and the need of the lost is an urgent need. And I'm convinced that one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor living in DFW, the buckle of the Bible Belt, where people live casual, cultural Christianity, is to give a message that moves those people from apathy to urgency. Many Christians are a lot like Esther. Many folks in America are in that apathetic state. They live in their palaces and they drive their luxury cars and they wear their luxury clothes and they seem to be insulated from and unaffected by the perishing of untold billions around the world. And if there was ever a call that a generation of young preachers and missionaries needed to sound over and over again to a very comfortable American church, it's wake up and get your urgency back. Early American pastor John Shaw said, you must bring fire to kindle fire. And if we're going to accomplish the mission that we've been given, we need more than apathetic, casual, business as usual, cold, formal, professional, dead Christianity. And we need more than that from our preachers and missionaries. We need fire. We need urgency. And if we're going to kindle it, we need to bring it. My guess is that there are some men and ladies in this room that need to move this morning from apathy to urgency. And let's see how it happens. I see four things in this passage that got Esther doing what God intended for her to do. The first thing I see is a providential moment. A providential moment. Mordecai sends a servant, Esther, I think you're the person that's going to help us with this problem. Esther writes back and says, you don't understand, I can't go before the king unannounced. If I go into his presence unannounced, I'll die. Mordecai sends back an answer. Look at what he says in verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou in thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I call this a providential moment. Now, providence, of course, is God's behind-the-scenes work in our lives. And providence happens to be the central theme of the book of Esther. You won't find the name of God one time as you read this book, but as you'll read it, you'll see that God was behind the scenes the entire time working things together for His glory and for the good of His people. 
And this law, by the way, that, that Haman has enacted to exterminate the Jews will at the end of the story be used by God to exterminate the enemies of the Jews. God will work in an incredible and providential way. So what Mordecai wants Esther to recognize when he says to her, don't you know you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? He wants her to recognize God's providence in her life in putting her where she is. He says, Esther, don't forget how you came into this kingdom. Don't forget how you became the queen. You see, it was no accident that both of Esther's parents were killed early in life and she was left an orphan. Now that must have been incredibly difficult. But it was a part of God's plan for Esther's life. It wasn't a coincidence that she was adopted by her cousin Mordecai, a man who was high up in the Persian government. And it wasn't by chance that King Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the world at that time, would call for his queen while he was in a drunken stupor to impress his drinking buddies. And that she would say, no king, I don't think I'm coming to show off for you and your friends because we all know that queens say no to kings every day, right? And it wasn't by chance that he deposed that queen. And instead of looking for another queen from his harem, he decided he would be the next contestant on The Bachelor Persia. <laughs> and it was just happenstance, by the way. I'm sure that Esther was born beautiful, a real knockout. And that out of an estimated 2.5 million ladies in that kingdom, the king would like her the best. And lucky enough, she happened to be a Jewess, a part of the very people that were about to be destroyed. I'm sure God had nothing to do with any of that. He says, Esther, wake up. Can't you see? You've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All the pain in your life, and it's been there. And all the privileges in your life, and you've enjoyed them. All the pain, all the privileges were for this purpose. All those moments were for this moment. Esther, wake up. This is your time. This is your destiny. This is your opportunity to make a difference. It's now or never. And I want you young people to think about your life for a moment. Listen to me. You are not a cosmic accident. You were not a random mutation. Your life is about far more than passing on your DNA to your descendants or being a cog in the wheel of society. You are not a nobody going nowhere. You are a somebody going somewhere. And the Bible says that before the first angel ever rustled his wings or the first star was ever flung into outer space, that you were loved by God and you were planned for by God. I'm here to tell you God has a purpose for every person. He's got a plan and purpose for you today. I also want you to know that He's really only doing one thing in this world. Just one. Read the Bible and you'll discover that the one thing God is doing is that He is gathering from every nation, tongue, and tribe a people for His name. That's what God is doing in this world. He wants everybody to have an opportunity to hear His gospel. 
He only has one mission, and I believe today that everything that happens in our lives is for the sake of that mission. Can I say it this way? All of the providences of God are for the purpose of God. Every bit of pain, every privilege you enjoy for the purpose of God. Now, I only know about seven of you in here very well today. But I can imagine for the rest of you that you have experienced some pain in your life. That like Esther, some hard things have happened to you. I also know for a fact that because you're sitting in this chair and claim to be a Christian, you've experienced some privileges in life, privileges that many persons in this world have never, had to, have never gotten to experience. What I want you to see today is that nothing that has happened in your life, none of the pain, none of the privileges were for an accident. Every providence has a purpose. And you and I have been brought into the kingdom in 2019 for such a time as this. And by the way, such a time as this is the only time we're guaranteed to have. And when you begin to see the providential purpose of God in your life, you won't live like your life is incidental or unimportant to the mission. You will know that it is important and that it has a purpose and you will begin to live with urgency. Mordecai said, everything that's happened in your life is for this purpose. Can't you see it? Now or never, Esther. My now or never moment happened when I was 17 years old. I was as far from God as I have ever been in my entire life, and I pray by God's grace I'll never go back there. My parents shipped me off to summer camp at the Wilds of the Rockies Christian Camp. And I was rebelling to the very core the entire time there. It was Tuesday night, and Dr. Tom Farrell was preaching. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon me in a way that I have never experienced in my life. And as the invitation started, he called for people to leave their seats and go upstairs there at the wilds of the Rocky and get counseling and surrender their lives to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit said very clearly to me that Tuesday night, Tyler, if you don't serve me now, you never will. You can stay in your chair and you can live the life you're living for the rest of your life or you can get up from that chair and you can have the life that I have for you. And by the sheer grace of God, a rebellious 17-year-old got up out of his chair, walked up those stairs, and I have never been the same again. It was a now or never moment for me. I tell that story a lot. I tell it to people. I tell it while I'm preaching. And several years ago, I was over at the house of our music director, Brother Andrew Johnson. We were talking about important spiritual decisions that we had made in life. And I was talking about that now or never moment when I was 17 years old. He said, what year was that at the Wilds of the Rockies? And I said, it was 2000. And, and he said, you said Tom Farrell was preaching that week? And he said, yeah, Tom Farrell was the preacher. He said, you know, my youth department from Houston only went to the Wilds of the Rockies one time, but Tom Farrell was preaching, and I'm pretty sure it was 2000. He had some pictures from camp. 
He went and looked through some of his old things and he pulled out a big group photo and he showed me, he said, there I am and, and there's my wife Rachel, we were dating and, and he looked around and it wasn't hard to find the highlighter, there I was. <laughs> he said, can you believe that? We were there at the exact same week. Now that's a coincidence, isn't it? But we began looking at that picture. And you know who else was there that week? Worth Baptist Church was there that week. I didn't grow up in that church. I grew up in Midland, Texas, six hours away from Fort Worth. Didn't even know Worth Baptist Church existed. But the church that I would pastor someday was on the campsite. So we went to some of our youth workers who've been working in the youth department for quite some time. Do you have any pictures from the summer of 2000? And they had some pictures that they had taken of their young people. And in the background of some of those pictures, there I am on one side, there's Brother Johnson on the other side. You know what hit me at that moment? It was as if, and I didn't know it, it was as if when I was 17 years old, God was saying to me, Tyler, you have no idea the blessings I have in store for you if you will just surrender your life to me. I could have never guessed that I'd get to be the pastor of one of the great independent Baptist churches in the state of Texas at 32 years old. I could have never guessed that I'd get to speak in meetings like this and prominent conferences and that God would use my life in ministry the way that He's used it. All I knew when I was a 17-year-old boy was that I had one little life and God wanted it and I wanted to give it to Him. And God took the providences of the past and showed me my life has a purpose. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that if you'll put your life in the hands of God, He'll do more with it than you ever could. Amen. Young person, this is your time. This is your generation. This is your chance. And you're not here at this place in this moment in history with all the pain and privileges that God has allowed for an accident. It's on purpose. This is your moment of destiny. Seize it and do it with urgency. Amen. Esther, you need to see a providential moment. Not only do I see a providential moment, I see a proven method. Look at verse 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. We'll save that next phrase for a minute. Esther says, okay, I'm starting to recognize God's put me here for a purpose and maybe I should go to the king. But before I go to the king, let's take three days to plan and strategize. Is that what she said? Let's take three days to agonize over every word of my speech. Let's take three days to circulate a petition or shoot a video or launch a social media campaign. No, let's take three days to fast, and I believe by implication, to pray. Ladies and gentlemen, prayer is the proven method for getting God's work done in this world. The fact that Esther was willing to take three days to fast and pray about this situation 
reveals to me that there was growing within her an increasing level of urgency. The content and the fervency of our prayer lives reveal what we are really passionate about. Can I ask you a question, young person? What do you pray about? Most Bible college students pray to get a date, a grade, and their school bill paid. And some of you upperclassmen are really fervent about that first one. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray about those things, but can I remind you something I think you folks know well? That the Lord Jesus only really had one prayer request. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. The Lord Jesus commanded that our prayers should revolve around his purpose in this world. And I want you to think about your prayers for a moment because they are the great indicator of what's really on your heart. And I want to ask you, if God answered every prayer you prayed over the last seven days, would any lost person be saved? Would any unreached people group have a laborer? Or would you merely be healthier and wealthier and happier? You see, folks, our prayer lives reveal our passion. Prayer is not only an indicator of urgency, it creates urgency. If Esther went into those three days of prayer uncertain about what she would do, I believe she came out of it with the resolve to go to the king. Esther prayed because she knew if she was going to find favor in the sight of the king, and this mission, as large as it was, was to succeed, God must be the one to do it. J. Sidlow Baxter said, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Samuel Chadwick said, There is no power like that of prevailing prayer, of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, Moses standing in the breach, Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, David, heartbroken with remorse and grief. Jesus, in sweat and blood. Add to this list from the records of the church your personal observation and experience. And always there is a cost of passion unto blood. But he said, such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. And D.L. Moody said every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. And I'm here to tell you, young men and ladies, if you sense there's an urgency for souls missing from your life, the best place you can get it is on your knees in prayer. You learn to get a hold of the heart of God and it won't be long until you have the heart of God. A proven method. Esther prayed. And it brought urgency. I love this third point. Look at the last phrase of verse 16. And if I perish, I perish. I call this a potential martyrdom. Esther says, we're going to pray about this thing before I go into the king. And if I perish when I go in, then I perish. Now listen, Esther's not being a diva here. 
the danger's real. King Ahasuerus had a law that said no one could come into the presence of the king uninvited, not even the queen. Josephus tells us that the king had a group of bodyguards in the throne room, almost like a secret service. And then instead of carrying nine millimeters, they carried axes. And if you approached the king and he did not hold out for you the golden scepter, then it was off with your head. And if you study history and what Josephus has to say about it, you get the idea that the axes were used much more than the golden scepter was. To complicate matters, study Esther 4. Esther had not seen the king in 30 days. She was going down on his list. But on one end of the scale, Esther placed her life. And on the other end of the scale, she placed the lives of her people. And she decided in that day that there was something more valuable to her than her life and that she would go before the king for the sake of her people if it was the last thing she did. If I perish, I perish. The Bible's filled with that attitude. I think of David going to battle against the giant without a sword or a stitch of armor. He did it so all the earth would know there was a God in Israel. And if he perished, he perished. I think of the disciples in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had been placed in prison. They had been commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And those weren't empty threats because those same people had crucified Christ just a few months before. So they gathered together with the church and they began to pray. And they said, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word. What were they saying? If we perish, we perish. I think of the Lord Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that the salvation of billions was on the line. And as He sweats great drops of blood, He says to the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. What was he saying? If I perish, I perish. Praise the Lord Jesus that on one end of the scale he put his life, and on the other end of the scale he put your eternal soul, and he decided that it was worth the sacrifice of his life to save you. I want to remind you today that this world will not be reached in our generation by people that hold their lives dear unto themselves. The unreached are unreached for a reason. They're hard to get to and they don't want us there. As my friend Dave Delaney says, all the easy places are taken. Hudson Taylor would travel the United States and call for students to pack their belongings in a coffin and come to China. Because they would never come home. They would never see their parents. They would never see the United States of America. And they would go and they would die there. You see, that kind of call must not have attracted many young people. No, no, no. They went to China by the thousands. And they used those coffins. And they shed their blood for the sake of the nations. 
I'm here to tell you today that we need a different appeal. We need a different call. We travel the United States bribing young people with iPads and Xboxes to show up. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised that showing up is all they do. There was a time that people held God's glory among the nations as a treasure greater than their lives and they were willing to shed their blood so Jesus might have the praise that he has died to have. And it is time for Christian leaders to stop babysitting and placating and time to get some urgency in our voice again and say the world is dying and headed to hell. Who would join me and make a difference with your life? And if we perish, we perish. Someone's going to have to shed their blood to take the Muslims in the Middle East, the gospel. Someone's going to have to shed their blood to take the gospel to people in North Africa and to the Hindus in India. And what I came to ask you today is the treasure of Christ's praise and worship among all nations worth more to you than your own life? And would you be willing to say today, if I perish, I perish. It's always been the call. If any man would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A potential martyrdom. One more thing I see, a pressing motive. What's Esther's motive in all of this? I think it's very clear. It's to save a people. That motivation is behind everything. You especially see it in chapter 8. Would you turn there? Look at what Esther says when she does go before the king in that throne room. This is her second time in that throne room. And look at what it says in verse 5. And she said, If it please the king, and I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes. Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Hamad, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how shall I endure to see the destruction? of my kindred. She's not apathetic anymore, is she? You know what she's saying? King, I can't live if they die. In the New Testament, I hear echoes of that in Romans chapter 9 and 10. When Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Brethren, he says in chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And I want to remind you that what Esther and Paul desired for their people, the heart of God desires for all people. It's God's pressing motive. And it ought to be ours as well. A young man was walking down the street in Chicago when he was approached by a well-dressed man. The man asked him, Sir, are you a Christian? The young man replied very curtly, That's none of your business. And he walked off. 
As he got further down the street, a friend who saw the incident said, what did that well-dressed man say to you? Well, he asked me if I was a Christian, and I told him it was none of my business. His friend replied, that man was D.L. Moody, and it is his business. I want to remind you, it is our business if our friends and relatives die and go to hell. It is our business if the unreached stay unreached. It is our business that 6.5 billion people are headed towards eternal damnation when Jesus has already shed His blood to save them. It is our business. Robert Coleman said this. He said, world evangelism is the divinely ordered goal for all of us. Not only is it attainable, it is inevitable. Whether or not we believe it, someday the gospel of the kingdom will be heard to the ends of the earth. The God of the universe will not be defeated in His purpose. And any activity not in step with God's design for human destiny is an exercise in futility. The sooner we realize this and align our way with His, the sooner we will be relevant to eternity. Young people, one day a generation of Christians will arise and they'll connect God's providences with God's purposes. They'll be fervent in prayer and they'll pray for the salvation of the nation and God will send laborers. One day, a generation of Christians will arise and they won't see the mission as impossible. They'll see it as inevitable. And they will shed their blood to take the gospel to the farthest expanses of the globe. And they will say, if we perish, we perish. And my question for you is, why not us? And why not now? Why can't this be the generation that sees the accomplishment of the Great Commission? If that's going to happen, we have to, in our own hearts, in our own lives, move from a position of casual indifference and apathy to a position of urgency. And to kindle fire in God's people, we've got to bring it with us. And my guess is there are some people here sitting in Bible college and you need what Esther needed that day. You need to move from apathy to urgency.